0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7. We come this morning to the fourth Sunday of Advent, the Sunday before Christmas Day, and as is our custom, we come also to the Lord's table today. It has become a practice to the Sunday prior to Christmas to observe the Lord's Supper together and to think about the gift that came at the end of his life as well as uh, thinking about the beginning of his life. You know, too often, and we've said this before, but too often we get so captivated, even as Christians, in thinking about the, Beth, uh, the birth and the manger on that particular, um, uh, that particular morning or day that we forget about the totality of his life. We forget about the full meaning of what it, what it means that he came that He was present among us, that as as the text that Scott read earlier, you know, that that He came and He dwelled among us. He he lived among us. He tabernacled, pitched His tent. Whatever translation you've got there talks about that He came and He dwelt among us to be our Redeemer and to be our Savior. I mean, that that is the, the totality. He didn't just come to be born, but He came to live a perfect life and to die as a perfect sacrifice that all who believe might come to know Him. Now, you, know, you realize that to the, to the secular ear, that really sounds strange. I mean, the whole thing about Christmas to the secular ear is somewhat, uh, somewhat unusual, somewhat strange. That, a, that a, a virgin, one who had never known a man, a very young lady, no doubt, was with child, conceived not by a man but conceived by the Holy Spirit within her for a very specific person, a purpose chosen by God to be used in that specific and particular way. I mean, can you really try to hear that from the secular mind that, that God blessed Mary in such a way and chose Mary in such a way that, that all of this happened? I mean, it, just sounds, it sounds fairytale-ish. It sounds like something, surely somebody made up. It only is when the Holy Spirit of God comes upon you and moves upon you and shows you the truth of that reality that it can make any sense at all. And it's only when you understand the totality of Scripture that that birth takes on its real significance and its real meaning. And that's what the prophet Isaiah is talking about in chapter 9 verses 6 and 7, that I want to read to you again right now and then look at for a moment as we prepare to come to this table. I want to talk to you about the paradoxes of Christmas. The paradoxes of Christmas. You know what a paradox is? It's it's something that seems to be a contradiction. It's something that, that seems to be incompatible as though they they just don't fit together. But that's exactly what Christmas teaches us, that there are paradoxes in this life that we only understand by the revelation of God. We don't understand them by human reason. We don't understand them by normal circumstances. But only as God shows them, only as God enlightens our heart to understand the revealed text, the scriptures, can we really come to see it as truth and believe it as truth. And place our faith in that because it is the truth. Listen at the prophet Isaiah again. Verse 6 For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You know, as you look at that, as you, you start out, it's real easy to just kind of fly over that first phrase, those that first part of verse six, where it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And it's almost you know, like taking that as being saying the same thing, just saying it two different ways. But that's not what Isaiah is saying. He's saying there will be a son born, talking about the humanity of Christ, the humanity of the coming Messiah, and there is a son that is given. There is a son that is born, a son will be born, a child will be born, and a son will be given to us. That's the deity side. That's the, the, the side of the God-man. A son will be born, We know what birth is. And and a son will be born, but a a son will also be given. The very son of God, the very very God incarnate person, the only one who is 100% God, 100% man, he will be given to us, not born by natural causes, not born in natural ways, but he will be given to us as a gift as one who will be our substitute, as one who will be our sacrifice. The prophet Isaiah, speaking under the inspiration of God himself, says this is what's going to happen. And in that verse 6, he's looking forward to that that takes place in that manger in Bethlehem thousands of years later. A child will be born. His name will be Jesus. But a son will be given. His title will be Christ. Christ. Messiah, Savior, and Lord. And, and so in this one verse, in that first part of verse 6, we see the humanity and the deity of Christ all wrapped into one. We understand that He is born and He is given. And you cannot miss out on those two things. You take away either one of those, and you fall into heresy. You fall, fall into false teaching. You take away His humanity, and you ta- or you take away His deity, either one, and you miss the whole point of this Christmas story that Isaiah is beginning to foretell before it ever came. He goes on and he says the government will rest on his shoulders, obviously talking about his kingdom that is established. His a kingdom that is now present among his people in his church. His kingdom where he rules within the church. He He is the sovereign. He is the Lord He is the one of whom we are his slaves, his servants, his doulas, as Scripture talks about, and he rules over his church. We miss that in the 20th and 21st century to a great extent. We've come to think that the church is all about us and what we can get out of it and what we want and how we want it to happen, and we get all caught up in everything from worship wars over music to to taste and how we do various things and programs and all, and that means nothing. The the point is not that we want to decide what we like and what we want. The idea is what does he want and what does he command and how can we submit ourselves to that? How can we find ourselves in submission to the king's will? Not our will. Not what we desire. But what has he spoken and what has he said? The government of his kingdom and his kingdom on earth today is, is in embodied in the church of Jesus Christ. This is his kingdom. One day his kingdom will be over all things and he will, he will rule in that, in that period where he will show himself as the Lord to all men and, and some will, will still struggle with that. All will ultimately bow, but at one point it will be too late. But it says the government will rest on his shoulders. He will rule. It's his authority. And our job as a church today is not to try to be hip, not try to be the contemporaries we can be, not to try to please the world. Our job is to say, what is it that God has said, and what does God want, and let's align ourselves with that in obedience to him. But but then it gives some names. It says and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Several names there. Now, I want you to know, in in most translations today, and in the one I'm reading from, and probably the one you have, it appears that Wonderful is a a descriptive word for Counselor, a, a modifying term for Counselor. He will be Wonderful Counselor. There's no comma after Wonderful. Spurgeon argued in in his Christmas sermon of 1858, uh, Spurgeon argued that there should have been a comma after wonderful. That that there should be a a comma there to break it away from counselor. That it should be read, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And I don't, you know, you realize there were no, there were no commas or periods in the original text. Uh, Those are all, interpretive devices that were used by the translators of the text. And I think Spurgeon has a point. I think the whole idea is to say his name will be called Wonderful. The word Wonderful there in the Hebrew can carry with it several meanings. It can carry with it the idea of Marvelous. His name will be Marvelous. He will be among all people. And I I think of all sorts of jokes that use the word Marvelous and don't think of those right now because this is a good term. He's marvelous. We marvel at him. We stand in amazement at him, Isaiah is saying. And he's wonderful. But it's also a word that can be miraculous. That this one shall be called miraculous because indeed his birth is miraculous, his life was miraculous and his perfection and his death, burial and resurrection is miraculous. He shall be called wonderful. His name shall be wonderful, marvelous miraculous awe inspiring unbelievable in the in the in the fullest sense of that term that that's what Isaiah wants us to see. And then he goes on to say, He will also be called Counselor, and He will be the Counselor of many. He will counsel us through His Word and by His Spirit. He will be called Mighty God, because indeed, that's who this little baby in the manger is. He's the Mighty God come to dwell among us. He will be called Eternal Father and Prince of Peace. And Isaiah could have gone on. There are many other names in the Scripture, both Old and New Testament, that Isaiah could have pulled from to say, this is what his name will be. But he chose those just to give us a flavor of the the magnificence of this one that is born on this particular day. But think about it. A little baby in a manger called Mighty God? There's something of a paradox there. He's a baby. There's Ma- there's Mary, his his mother. There's Joseph, his assumed father. By that point, as we know him, he- he's merely his his stepfather, caring for him in life. But but that baby, mighty God, that baby, eternal Father, that baby, Prince of Peace. Why it was just a baby? There's a paradox in the very birth it's not until you come on down the line and you watch his life develop and his ministry develop and you see that he really is unique. He really is different from anyone that has ever been on this earth. He's different from anybody that's ever walked or spoke or taught or anything else. But it's not even until you come to the final days of his life when he hangs on that cross, is buried in that grave, and then raises again from the dead that you really see the totality of how wonderful he is. Some looked at him and said he's wonderful as a teacher. That's good. We will take him or we will leave him. Some looked at him and said he's wonderful as a miracle worker. We love to see him uh, heal the sick. We love to see him heal the blind. We love to see people who have been crippled since birth to stand up and walk. I mean, oh, that's wonderful, but we'll take him or we'll leave him. But he's mighty God. God. He's the one who speaks, and, and you really have to deal with that. You cannot just say, meh, it's no big deal. It's a big deal. This one born on Christmas is the mighty God of all creation. That's what John was talking about in John 1 that that Brother Scott read just a little bit ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. By Him all things were made, and apart from Him was not anything made that was made. There would be nothing without Christ. You See the thing that that Isaiah is showing here is this one whose name is called Wonderful is wonderful in the past and he's wonderful in the present and he'll be wonderful in the future he's wonderful in the past and in the before time I mean he was there with God at the creation he was already in existence there's no there's no doubt about that scripturally he is the pre-existent son of God pre to that before that birth in the manger Thus the Son is given, not just born. He was marvelous. He was wonderful. He was miraculous in the past. We we don't always understand. A matter of fact, we never understand fully the whole concept of the Trinity and how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all fit together as one God. I mean, we, we struggle with that, and we, we wrestle with that even as believers. But we ultimately come to the point of Scripture saying, well, that we, we believe it because it's revealed. And so that baby in the manger was really long before that in existence and ruling and wonderful. In our past, we see his life on earth and we say his life is is wonderful. His life that we read about in scripture when he walked on the earth is a magnificent life. It's 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 a life unparalleled by anybody else. He's also wonderful in the present. Right now. Because we understand that because of his resurrection, he's not dead. That's the uniqueness of Christianity. That's the uniqueness of our faith. Is that every other faith on the face of the earth has a founder just like Christ was a founder of Christianity. But every one of those founders' body, bones are lying somewhere right now in a grave. Christ didn't. He rose from the dead. He is alive forevermore. And so he's wonderful not only in the past, but he's wonderful in the present. He's wonderful right now among us by his Holy Spirit, working his will and calling us to obedience, calling us to himself, calling us as his people to obedience. But he'll also be wonderful in the future, according to to Isaiah. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace in the future on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The Lord of hosts, Lord God, Lord Almighty, his zeal will accomplish that. It will happen, Isaiah saying. No government on earth, no king, no president, no congress, no supreme court. Nothing can stop his rule. Nothing can end his power. I and mean, that's what he's talking about here. You know, we, we look and we say, he'll establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Lord, help us. Don't we wish we had government that was just and righteous today? We don't. It's very unjust, inju- very unjust and very unrighteous in so many ways. It's all about me. It's all about what I can get out of it. We elect people. They go up there with the great, great ideas, and, and they look so good when we're voting for them, and it seems like within no time at all, they're just there for themselves, right? No righteousness in that. There's no justice in that. But in his kingdom, when he establishes it over all the earth, It will be ruled by justice and righteousness and will be upheld by such. There's a a paradox in that. And then we come to this table this morning and we we think about the birth. We think about His death. We think about how in the world can, can one who was born as God in the flesh suffer death? That was a struggle many had in the day with him. That's a struggle that even his apostles had, his disciples had. Well, well, Lord, how can you die? You've come as the Messiah. You've told us you are the one whom God has sent. How can you die? Well, you, if he doesn't die, there is no kingdom. If he doesn't die, there is no salvation. If he doesn't die, there is no forgiveness. He lived perfect in order to die as the perfect Lamb of God. To observe this supper during the Christmas season is meaningful in, in a special sort of way because you see the totality of his ministry and his life and his purpose wrapped up in that memorial meal. I, I like the way Spurgeon said it in that sermon when he was talking about his name will be wonderful. He, he talked about the paradoxes, the wonderful paradoxes of the incarnation. Spurgeon said, In Christ, the infinite... Becomes an infant. I mean, what is any more finite than an infant? What is any more limited and, and necessary for, for assistance than an infant? But the infinite becomes an infant. The etern- he's eternal, yet he's born of a woman. He's almighty, and yet hanging on a woman's breast, supporting the universe, and yet needing to be car- carried in a mother's arms. He's the king of angels, and yet he's the reputed son of Joseph. He's the heir of all things, and yet the carpenter's despised son. I mean, do you see the paradoxes that fall in there? The the, the apparent contradictions, the apparent differences that, that fall within all that? Another writer, a contemporary writer, Sam Storms, also uh, reflected on the paradoxes. Now, like these, uh, hear this as we prepare to come to this table. Storm says, the Word became flesh. It's a paradox. The very Word of God, the Word that spoke everything into existence, became flesh. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable became touchable. Eternal life experienced temporal death in that cross, The transcendent one descended and drew near. The one who was always separated, the God who was always up there, came close and drew near. The unlimited became limited for a period of time. The infinite became finite. The immutable became mutable. He changed. He didn't stay a baby. He grew. He matured. didn't change in his character, but changed physically. The unbreakable became fragile. Spirit became matter. Eternity entered time. The independent became dependent. The Almighty became weak. The loved became the hated. The exalted was humbled. Glory was subjected to shame. Fame turned into obscurity. From inexpressible joy to tears of unimaginable grief. From a throne to a cross. From ruler to being ruled from power to weakness. All of that so that He could be our Redeemer. All of that so He could give His body on a cross as our perfect Lamb for our salvation. All of that so that He could shed His blood as the blood of the New Covenant. You you see, we don't typically always think about the Lord's Supper as being a part Of Christmas. But without the Lord's Supper, and without the cross, and without the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ, the manger really means nothing. It it, it gathers and garners its meaning out of the purpose and the calling with which He came into this world. It, It becomes a reality. That becomes significant. Infinitely significant because of who was there and why he was there and what that being there led to. But you take away the cross and you take away the meaning of Christmas. You take away the resurrection and you take away the whole depth of the manger. That's why I you know I say this every year, and I'll say it till the day I die, probably. The cross was always behind the cradle. The cross was always behind the cradle. It was there as His purpose. It was there as His calling. And it was only the cross, only through the cross and by the cross, that you and I could be reunited, brought back into fellowship with a God against whom we had rebelled. So we come to this table, and and the Scripture says we're to come in remembrance and and thinking about the past and thinking about the present and anticipating His second coming. So we're all wrapped up in that. We remember what He did. We remember what He's doing in our lives now, and we remember what He will do one day when He returns to this earth. Come to the table to say, thank you, Lord. To Say, we are grateful, Father. For your unspeakable and unimaginable sacrifice that goes beyond anything we could have ever dreamed of, anything we could have ever hoped for. because it's by your giving unto us a child is given. It's by your giving that we can know eternal life, that we can know a relationship with Christ and with God through Christ, It's by that first, it's by that cross and the supper that we understand the significance of the manger. I want you to bow your heads with me as we prepare to partake of this meal. I'm going to ask the the deacons who are serving to go ahead and come forward. uh, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want you praying right now. I want you seeking His face. I want you asking for His understanding of this. As we come to this table, we come as an act of faith, and as an act of gratitude. Come to this table to remember. If you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, a baptized believer, whether you're a member of grace or not, I invite you to participate in this. This is the Lord's table, not our table. If you're not a baptized believer, I ask you just to let it pass you by. Think about what it means. But just let the let the tray and let the the elements pass you by. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit will strengthen us as we come to this table. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will deal with us about sin in our own life, even during this Christmas season. I ask you, Lord, to to remind us that the paradox of Christmas is the paradox of your rule and your reign over all this earth. We may not see it with our physical eyes. We may not understand it completely. But, Lord, by your word, we know it's true. And for that, we are grateful. Father, use this time to strengthen your body, the church, as we worship you through the Lord's Supper. scripture says that on that night just before his crucifixion and his betrayal he took the bread and he broke it and he said this is my body which is given for you and this cup is the cup of the new covenant that, that seals forever your relationship with me that all who by faith will come and believe We'll know the joy of relationship with Him. Father, we bow in Your presence and thank You for the bread and the cup. We ask Your blessings on it as we think about it, even right now. Lord, strengthen us. Be glorified in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love He predestined us to adoption as sons Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ things in heavens and in the heavens and things on the earth in him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. For this reason, I too, having heard the faith of your faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and for all your love of the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him I pray that in that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Scripture says that he took the bread and he blessed it. He said, take and eat it and do this in remembrance of me. And after that, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood. Take this, drink it, and do this in remembrance of me. In the Lord's Supper, we have the gospel that Jesus Christ died, gave his life, shed his blood, that for all who believe, there might be eternal life. I challenge you this morning, if you're here and not a believer, to come to Christ. Trust in His work and His work alone. Your good deeds won't do it. Your your family heritage won't do it. It's only in Christ, by God's grace, that you can be made right with God. I invite you to Christ, to come to Him. The scripture says that on that night, and if you want to talk with someone, I'm here, staff is here, deacons are here. Anybody would love to talk to you about what it means to trust Christ. Scripture says on that night, he, when they did the Lord's Supper, they observed the Lord's Supper, that they sang a hymn and went out. Jeff, what is our hymn? How great is our God. It's a great closing hymn for this. As we stand together, And sing together. We will sing this unto the Lord. It's a hymn of commitment. We'll also sing this as a remembrance of what this supper means. Let's sing together. Amen. Don't forget tonight, be back for the